You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both senior writers in MMA for The Athletic, and we meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, we're up at your house this week. Yeah. Change of venue here for probably this week, maybe next week. We could be up here for the duration. Now, see, that's that's not what I had understood the case to be. Well, we're having the house painted. We talked about the uh, the paint samples. You know, you had come over and seen the paint samples. That was scheduled to get underway this morning, although after uh, we had already gone through the rigmarole of moving the co-main event podcast, the painters hit me up to say they weren't they were not actually coming over today. They're going to get started tomorrow due to a quote unquote hiccup on the other job site. So, well, I think what everybody wants to know is what paint did you go with? Did you go with white or other white? We went with decorators white. That's the warmer white, not the one with the uh, yellow tones. They both were just white, man. The tones that were so prevalent, the yellow tones, that I'm sure you noticed. You're being sold a bill of goods. You know that, right? I mean, it's not like we got upsold. They're both the same price. Just That's what they want you to think. Various different kinds of white that you can get. In any case, here we are, co-main event podcast. A little bit of uh, an unorthodox format for the show today. We're going to do kind of like a two-round tough-style exhibition this week. We're going to spend the first half of the show answering listener mail questions because we got a lot of good ones about the UFC uh, fight card in D.C. this past weekend with uh, Alexander or Alistair Overeem and uh, Yarzino Rosenstrike. I guess we're saying Rosenstrike now. That's how you say it. Biggie boy. The biggie boy. So that whole card, a lot of, uh, a lot of things transpired during that card. A lot of, a lot of stuff to talk about. And then once we get into the bottom of the hour, we're going to spend the second half of the show talking a little bit about previewing UFC 245 and its three championship fights. So we expect to split the show pretty evenly in half this week. Now, I know we're in an unfamiliar location. We have Usually we have your children's toys spread out here. Um, I want to draw your attention here to this pink trap. Pink little cage. Yeah, there's a cage up here on the table. It's got a penny in it. One penny. Well, there used to be some kind of toy in it. I think it came in like a Happy Meal, maybe. Over the weekend, there was a a small vole. You know what a vole is? A vole. Like a like kind of like a a mouse. Okay. Like a little rodent. Sometimes my cats they go outside. They bring in. They catch these mice. Sometimes they kill them and eat them. Sometimes they bring them in and set them down and then kind of lose interest. The, the voles are particularly good at, they know how to play dead, and the cat just, after like five seconds of no movement, the cat's like, huh, I wonder what's going on upstairs, and then wanders away, and then there's a rodent in my house. And so you're so, talking about a live vole, not like a stuffed animal, like this an one, actual living creature. This one was not even wounded. Really fast for a vole, and alert. And it was downstairs in my office, and my daughters were helping me catch it. Uh, and they were using this trap. Oh, I see. Okay. And you can, I mean, you can look at this toy trap and already 
spot some problems yeah. with how it's going to work. That's going to be tough to get a vole inside. Yeah, so I just smashed it with a hockey stick and killed it. Okay. <laughs> huh. What do the children think about that? You know, they're pretty immune to stuff like that at this point. They've seen it all. Okay. Wow. They've watched one of these cats eat the head off a chipmunk in the front yard, so nothing phases them. Already hardened by life. Yep. Well, we put up the uh, poll for the co-main event podcast, Patreon Power Hour Movie Club voting. That is now live over at patreon.com slash co-main event. Ben, go ahead and tell the kids at home, all the little co-maniacs out there, what the two movies are that uh, are eligible for the vote this week. Well, this week, I think maybe these are the two newest movies that we've done. We're looking at, uh, these are both listeners uh, suggestions. It's listener choice week. Uh, the first choice from 2017, all the way back in 2017, The Shape of Water, suggested by Elias Armando Garcia Guevara. Okay, solid choice. Yep. The other choice, even newer, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, suggested by our dude Stephen G. I feel like the people at home need to know that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, while available on Amazon, is only available for purchase, given my understanding. So you got to go on there and drop... 20 bones to pick up once upon a time in Hollywood. I don't know that that's going to affect anyone's voting. It seems like the people who are interested in the movie club, let's just say, find a way to watch the movies. But I just want to make sure that we've got full disclosure out there. That's how much it costs if you purchase it legally on Amazon. Also important to note, most people aren't you. And they do sometimes go to the movies and see movies in the theater. Even in 2019? Even in 2019. I think a lot of people actually went to the theater and saw this. This might have been one of like three movies that I saw in the theater this year. I even went to the, the movie theater to see this one. So I think a lot of people have probably already seen that one, if in fact it does win. All right. Well, that, if you've already seen it, then you're covered. If you haven't seen it, be warned. How long is the poll going to run? We're a little bit late getting the poll up. We're Only gonna, about two days. We're just going to run it till Wednesday? We're going to run it till Wednesday. I feel like if you need longer than that to make up your mind, you're overthinking it. Okay. All right. Well, we do have some music this week, probably at the bottom, the bottom of the hour from our friend Dion Rodriguez, a music producer from Deltona, Florida. If you like what you hear from him on the podcast, you can check out more over at soundcloud.com slash dbeat7. And again, that's the word beats with a Z, beats. All right, let's kick it off. You ready to do this, listener mail? Well, first, there's something I've obligated to do before we dive into listener mail. Okay, I didn't know about this. Jed. Oh, this Tito Ortiz quote? You know it's December, right? Okay. It's CME Patreon Pledge Drive Month. We are dangerously close to hitting our mark here with the Irishman. Okay. So just I need a few more people to upgrade to that $5 level or sign up at the $5 level. Then we will release our special CME The Irishman movie club episode and and we're gonna release that one to five dollar and up patrons okay all kinds of good content you get patreon.com slash co-main event but since it is cme patreon pledge drive month i am obligated to hit you with the tito ortiz quote of the day this one i'm taking this one straight from saturday night's Combate America's pay-per-view, which I watched in its entirety. Brand new, hot off the presses, Tito Ortiz quote. This is Tito Ortiz backstage getting one last chance to hype the fight with uh, Alberto Del Rio. He looks into the camera with a really intense look on his face and says, if he can't stand in front of me, he's going to be flat on his back. No one fights the way I do. Hmm. Just think about that one. If he can't stand in front of me, 
he's going to be flat on his back. It's only two places to be. Yeah. Really. I mean, that's Tito breaking it down. All right, let's get into this. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Oscar Eagle, who writes, So Ozenstrike went out there not touching gloves with his butt crack showing, (laughs) disfigures and knocks out the ream in the last minute. Is this fellow now one of our guys? He did have his butt crack showing. Yeah, that's That's uh, true. A lot of people made note of that over the weekend. (laughs) Of course, this is the uh, heavyweight main event over there at UFC on ESPN 7 at Capital One Arena in Washington, D.C., uh, Rosenstrike, Beagie Boy, ultimately does emerge with a, pretty much a last-second KO of Alistair Overeem in the fifth round of this main event fight, going against the co-main event podcast philosophy that nothing good happens at heavyweight beyond round one. Waited till the last possible minute to uh, do this. I know he uh, just gashed the shit out of Alistair, Alex, Alistair Overeem. Why do we keep wanting to call him Alexander Overeem? I, I don't know who this guy is. He's been around for a while. Yeah. not He's not new on the scene. Yeah. Gash is open. The lip of Alistair Overeem. Pretty, pretty nasty cut. Gets the last second win. Not a thrilling fight, I would say, but also not a terrible fight. I think it suffers from being, you know, the last fight on a seven hour fight card or whatever. Also, but, there is some precedent. You said nothing happens after the nothing good happens after the first round in a heavyweight fight. There's some precedent for nothing really good happening. And then right at the end. Something crazy happens. Like we've seen a lot of heavyweight fights. Some one of the worst fights I think I've ever seen was Gabriel Gonzaga versus Kevin Jordan. And remember that one yeah. was Superman punch KO like in the final ten seconds. Remember yeah. Frank Mir and Mirko Krokop? There's another one where it's just like terrible all the way until the very like they wait until they have sucked the life right out of you, and then the very end just use. Can't say that nobody finished anybody. Then they deliver something. And the same thing here. So the biggie boy picks up a pretty big win, I guess you would say, over Alistair Overeem here. However, you know, he's been trying to scoop up this this fight with Francis and Ganu in the wake of this of this win. Rosenstrike has a legitimately, admittedly impressive rookie year in the UFC here. I think he picked up four wins. Caps it off with this victory over Overeem. Really wants a contender fight now with Francis Ngannou. Did what you saw here from Jerzino Rosenstrike, including not touching gloves with his butt crack showing, last second disfigurement <laughs> of the ream, did this make you feel more or less interested in seeing him kind of move up in competition to fight someone like Francis Ngannou in what could be like a title eliminator or at the very least a big time heavyweight contender fight. I mean, I'd watch the shit out of that fight. I'm interested. I guess I still would wonder in that situation, why is Francis Ngannou still fighting a contender to prove himself there after? Cause I thought that that's what he was doing against junior Dos Santos, yeah. right? That was yeah. supposed to be the idea. That was, it seemed like, the entire thought process behind that fight. He goes out there and he murks Junior Dos Santos in the first round really early on. And then you make him wait around for six months or something until he can fight another contender. Yeah, uh, That part just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But as far as would I want to see those two guys try to take each other's heads off? Yeah, that would be fun. Yeah, it seems like in a fight against Francis Ngannou, Rosenstrike is not going to be able to coast for four plus rounds. I don't know if you want to say he was coasting in this fight, but I it was not like he was. I mean, he was trying to do stuff. They were both trying to do stuff, but neither of them were getting a, a ton done. But Overeem, I think 
was the cagey veteran here he in was. that sense. Because uh, Rosenstrike is coming after him at times, and Overeem was doing the thing where he's like, all right, I can just put up my guard pretty high, and I'm not too worried about it. I'll, I'll Even if he gets stuck against the fence sometimes, he he's done that before in fights, and he can do it fairly effectively because he'll yeah. let you let fly with a whole lot of stuff, and he is not taking much damage there. And he is, in fact, kind of daring you, like, try to come up the middle, and try to break through this guard here. And then when you do, that's when you will leave yourself vulnerable to like a counter hook or something. That's part of the Overeem game plan there. So I don't fault Rosenstrike there for not being able to get enough done. Because he was trying. The thing I wonder though is, you know, fun, exciting, hard-hitting banger kind of guy. Also though, if Overeem can take you down and hold you down for a little while, yeah. there's a few guys at the very top of the heavyweight division who can do that even better. Yeah. Here, let's do this uh, question from Percy Link because it gets into a little bit more of an Overeem-centric discussion here. This may be just my personal bias of being an Overeem stan, but do you guys think that if there was a different referee that the Alistair could have survived until the bell? In my opinion, Dan Mergliata was probably influenced by personally, personally witnessing Biggie Boy faceplant Arlovsky just a few weeks prior. It didn't help that Rosenstrike made Overeem look like an extra from The Walking Dead either. I'm not saying it was the worst stoppage in UFC history, but damn, I wanted this one for the demolition man. Uh, it was an interesting stoppage. It, I mean, I don't have any issue with it. Do you? Are you prepared to sit here and be like, should have let him go? Should well, find out what you can do there. I mean, if you would have let him go, the fight was about to end anyway in about See, three seconds. Right, but then if it did end in three seconds, like four seconds later, yeah. then Overeem wins. Yeah. He wins a decision. Yeah. It's, it's super interesting because I think a couple things are happening all at once there. For one thing, that punch lands and just obliterates Overeem's face and sends him rocketing back into the cage, just yeah. flat on his ass. Yeah. And Rosenstrike turns and does the walk-off, does the Mark Hunt walk-off, like just assumes that it's over, hands up. And Dan Mirgliotta, to his credit, I think, is not baited by that. Like you've seen sometimes before where referees are like, they're in a mind to let it go. The other guy walks off and that kind of convinces them because otherwise you kind of look a fool yeah. or, a, or a sadist <laughs> if you're like, no, get back over here and continue pummeling this man. But Overeem tries... And fails the what-the-fuck test. Yeah, see, that's the and, thing that really kind of cemented like a, it for me. It's a pre-stoppage what-the-fuck test. The stoppage hasn't happened. Yeah. He's getting up as if in preparation to do the what-the-fuck, and then he kind of stumbles face-first into the fence. And that's, I think, when Mirgliata rightly says, okay, I've seen enough now. Yeah, when he first gets dropped, he's clearly not out, and he's kind of sitting there on his butt, and at that point, you think, okay, well, this one, maybe this one's not quite over. And then when Overeem himself tries to get up and he kind of stumbles to the side against the cage, that's when you get the stoppage, like you said. So it's it was a weird stoppage. It was like an uh, a, a not necessarily the most advantageous timing just because of when it happened in the fight. But at the same time, I don't know that you can necessarily take all that stuff into account if you are Dan Mergliata, if you're out there trying to referee this fight. Yeah, and a lot uh, is happening very quickly for Dan Mugliotta. Right, and again, like like we always say, we ask an awful lot of these referees. Essentially, in this one, you have a situation where you have to make that split-second decision about whether or not Alistair Overeem can continue. And like like you said, if you don't stop it right at that exact moment, he probably wins this fight because time expires and he wins a decision here. Uh, so, I don't know. It w I think it's a justifiable stoppage, and obviously the only thing that makes it a little bit hinky is the is where the fight was. It was almost the end of the fight, so that brings a little 
an additional layer to it. But at the same time, like, I don't think you can blame Dan Mergliata for it. Imagine the alternate world, though, where let's say Overeem is a really cagey veteran. For one thing, I'm amazed that Overeem got to his feet as quickly as he did after that. Yeah. His face got fucking smashed. It sure did. And, like, lip all just mangled all up. That was another thing where maybe when Dan Mirglada moves in and sees that, where he's like, okay. Yeah. I am horrified by man's inhumanity to man, <laughs> and I must bring an end to this. But let's say Overeem had managed to still get up, but maybe not try to do so much when he gets up. Like, just gets up enough to show that he's in it without trying to take a step on unsteady legs. Maybe he even brings his hands up to his face in a fighting posture. That also has the added benefit of concealing how bad the facial wound is. Right. From Dan Mirgliata. And Dan Mirgliata is then turn, having to turn to your, your guy BG Boy and be like, hey man, it's not over, get back over here. In that ensuing confusion, four seconds can tick off the clock easily. For sure, yeah. All Overeem would have to do is get up, stand there very still, not try to take any steps, cover the wound for just a couple seconds, and the next thing you know, the horn blows, fight's over, he wins the decision. Then imagine him standing there in the center of the cage, getting his hand raised with his mouth looking like that. Yeah. I mean, even if he just stays down, if he just stays down and he, you know, tries to wave Rosenstrike in or something like, come yeah. on, come into the, Alistair Overeem's vaunted guard. That's right. Right? Uh, Do you he, dare? Yeah, he probably. Do you dare come into this guard? He probably still wins at that point. All right, here's a question from Jamie, Win- Jamie Winquist. Ben, when do you plan to reach out to the Ream to share your tips on getting past horrible facial injuries? Yeah. Well, I know from experience you want to give it some time because it's really it's physically and emotionally raw at this time. So, uh, you know, when people go through what first I and now Overeem have gone through, uh, and I would say that they're – it's not a – I mean, yeah. No, I'm going to say it's an apples-to-apples comparison of what happened to me and what happened to Overeem. I mean, mine was the nose, his was the lip. Otherwise, as Mike Goldberg would say, virtually identical. Uh, there's a lot to process. It changes a person, Chad. So I'm going to give him some time, and then I'm going to reach out with some of the hard-won wisdom that I have on the topic. You disgust me right now. Short version, you'll never be the same. <laughs> you disgust me. The good news is that Overeem, unlike me, was not, prior to this, known as a great beauty. So he has... He doesn't have as far to fall. I, on the other hand, went from being, I guess you could say Adonis. I don't know. I mean, that's up to everybody if they want to use that word, uh, to now being kind of a Quasimodo figure. And it's hard. It's a hard adjustment. I'm still, I'm still adjusting. Don't you have to feel bad for Alistair Overeem here? Yes. Yes, very bad. He goes out there and has a legitimately effective fight not the funnest fight in the world but as an aging man in the heavyweight division who needs to get some wins he has the exact fight that he probably needs to have against the biggie boy cagey yeah. crafty some takedowns some actually like nice takedowns from alistair over him in this fight and he's seconds away from getting the win and not only does he get knocked out knocked down lose via tko but he gets like basically split up the side of his face like the damn Joker. Like disfigured. Yeah. Man, and it's weird. When that punch landed, when he got up, I thought for a second, I was like, is his mouthpiece like hanging out of his mouth? Like is his mouthpiece kind of like crooked like in his mouth the way we've seen sometimes? And then when we got close enough to realize, no, that's just what his mouth looks like now. That is kind of horrifying. 
And yet, he's going to deal with it with typical Alistair Overeem aplomb. Yeah. He's not super phased by it. You don't even really get the sense that Overeem is going to consider for even a second. Uh, should this be it? Have I done enough damage to myself in combat sports? I don't think he's asking himself that question at all. I don't think he is either. I think the question he's asking is, when can I get back out there? Next question this week comes from Andrew Eddinghausen, who writes, Is there a better example of a fighter proving Chad's always cheat hypothesis than Ben Rothwell's primo dundasso over Stefan Struve? I mean, Jesus H. Christ. Even if Tan Dan had taken a point away both times, Rothwell still walks away with the KO win. Discuss. And what belt is Big Ben being promoted to now? I mean, Rothwell must have emerged as a as the top level a top level dundaso practitioner here spiked leather belt is that what that is spiked leather belt we're going to get it from hot topic nice he's going to he's going to graduate to that level this was like the they do not make those belts in ben rothwell's size you maybe, know that maybe maybe they do you know they got a special order of those you got to ask the manager about it he's got to unlock the padlock that's attached to his nose ring and then go in the back and check. This was like the archetypal example of why the guy who gets kicked in the nuts during the MMA fight is, after that, fighting an uphill battle in more ways than one. Yeah, yeah. Because Stefan Struve is in immense pain during this thing, and the Washington, D.C. crowd, having already sat through hours and hours of mixed martial arts, is not having it. They're... Cheer when he stands up and then boo when he goes back down routine. That feels emotionally manipulative of your guy, Stefan Struve. Yeah. Like a a mass emotional manipulation done by uh, thousands of people. And these were two really bad low blows. The first one was terrible. I mean, when when you're not sure whether your testicles are inside or outside your body... That's a bad sign, man. Yes. Yeah, it is. I just want to go home at that point. Yeah. And, of course, Stefan Struve kind of weathers both of them. It seemed like the fight was going to get stopped after the first one. Yeah. He basically took the full five minutes for both nut shots. I know he, only, he took like f- four minutes with the second one, but essentially took the full time to try to recover after both these. And both times, Ben Rothwell, as I guess you should do and as you, you ought to do, immediately turns up the heat. When the fight starts again, like sensing that Stefan Struve is probably not at 100 percent, goes out there and uh, and puts the pressure on. And the second time gets the stoppage just a few seconds before the end of the second round. So some late stoppages in both of these heavyweight fights. But I mean, I guess you can't fault Ben Rothwell for doing that. But at the same time, like if you needed to show someone a video of why it pays to kick the other guy in the balls in an MMA fight, this would be the one. Yeah, I'm always torn there because what should you do? Should you give him a second and be like, okay, I'll I'll wait and see how he reacts. If he comes out right after me, then I guess it's on. Yeah. And we just go right back to fighting and trying to kill each other. Or do I, you know, like maybe not like the thing that Gabriel Gonzaga did in that Chris Trusher one, which still I regard as one of the worst ones I've ever seen. It's probably the worst one. Was after he's down there on the mat dry heaving into a bucket. And then we finally gets up and is convinced to continue. Almost the first thing Gabriel Gonzaga does is look low and kick high and kicks him right upside the head. Yeah. When you know he can't not instinctively bring his hands down to protect his very, very tender groin area. 
Did you see the thing Rothwell was doing where he was throwing uppercuts like, yeah, like around, around Struve's <laughs> guard and trying to hit him from basically the and outside? He landed a few of those. Yeah. And again, like just like Overeem, I feel like you got to feel bad for Stefan Struve, not only because, you know, the guy had kind of walked away from the sport for a while, said he needed to get himself back together, rekindle his excitement, his interest in the sport, recover physically from some stuff that had been going on with him. He comes back, and this was like, you know, for nearly two full rounds, like one of the better Stefan Struve performances than I remember seeing. Like the knock against Stefan Struve eternally has always been he doesn't fight like a seven-foot guy. In this fight, he's using leg kicks. He's got a push kick going. He kicks Ben Rothwell in the head a couple times. He's pumping the jab. He looks like Stefan Struve is finally going out there and fighting like a tall man. And then this happens. What do you think his uh, excitement levels for MMA are at right now? I mean, God willing that the testicles are okay. But they're not. If you're Stefan, you right if you're now. Stefan Struve, and like you thought about your career a lot, you had like this soul searching moment. You decide to come back, and then you know a testicle gets exploded by Ben Rothwell. You're probably going to be like, probably should have just stayed home. Yeah, probably should have just called it called it a career there with that retirement. Take this one as a sign, maybe. Next question this week comes to us from Kevin Schuler. Who writes, Big Dan seems to be getting a lot of unwanted attention lately. First the MVP fight, then the sympathetic look he gives savvy vets when they get KTFO'd. Now he seems to be offering Struve corner advice when he's deciding whether or not he should continue after two low blows. Is Dan Mergliata playing a little too fast and loose with his role as the referee? Yeah. It seems like he's feeling a lot of feelings out there these days. Yeah. Well, I understand, I guess, I'm I'm inclined to take a charitable view of what he thought he was doing when he's having this conversation with Struve. Yeah, no, I agree. But, again, I wrote about this today in the MMA mailbag. I remember Big John McCarthy would always talk about how the conversation you don't want to have and that you cannot allow yourself to get sucked into having as a referee, and you're talking to a guy who's just suffered a foul, intentional, unintentional, whatever, is... You don't want to start talking with him about what happens if I continue or if I don't. Right. Because that's not the question you're asking him right then. Right. The question you're asking him is, can you continue? And that's a yes or no question. And it ideally should not be affected by what's going to happen either way. Because either you can go or you can't. And if you can't go when you hear that you're going to win a disqualification, that doesn't mean that you should be able to go if you hear that it's going to be a no contest. Right. So, like, that, that part of the conversation shouldn't even happen. And I understand what he's doing there, kind of trying to let him know, like, hey, here's the situation. Here's what you're, you're dealing with. But your responsibility in that, that moment right then is just to determine, can he go? Yeah. Not, like, does he think all things considered it's a good idea to go? Yeah. Which, again, is one of those things that was a big... I don't know, misconception is the right word, but like one of the big happenings during that Chris Tuscher knock uh, low blow is when he was on the stool for minutes and minutes. Big John McCarthy was the referee, I believe, in that fight, like either couldn't or wouldn't tell him if he couldn't continue what the outcome would be. Because basically they didn't want to prejudice Tuscher one way or another to think that like, oh, I can get an easy win if I if I just check out of this thing. I don't know. Again, I don't know how you don't feel bad for Stefan Struve in this in this situation. And I don't really have a, a a substantive criticism to lodge against Dan Mergliata. I think everyone's just out there doing their best and for the most part doing a pretty good job. 
Next question this week comes to us from Harry Holler, who writes, so people didn't like the judges scoring the fight between Song Yedong and Cody, Cody Stamen as a draw. Before a few weeks ago, I would have agreed. I recently took a refereeing judging seminar from one of the more prominent MMA figures in the world. I assume that's Big John McCarthy, although he's not mentioned here. Uh, and I learned a ton and was shocked to find out that I was judging fights all wrong, and I've been watching MMA for 18 years and training for 14. The commentary does play a role in swaying fans. I watched it once with no sound and a second time with it. To keep this short, I also scored it as a draw, through round, though round two was very close. Stamen definitely controlled the fight more, but that's the third criteria for judging, and takedowns don't necessarily count as effective grappling. Judges dissect rounds, whereas fans can just score it based on perceived momentum. Best of luck with everything. Oh, and converse, or some such, if you please. Now, see, he doesn't so, First fully... of all, that's, this is a question from Harry Holler, the, the main character in Steppenwolf. Herman Hess's Steppenwolf. Okay, great. He, and he's recently taken a judging seminar. So yeah. that's good. To, it's good to hear that he's keeping busy. Broadness Horizons. Yeah. Uh, he, was, he seemed pretty down in the novel, when I, <laughs> from what I recall. We don't quite get a, a full explanation of here of, of how he'd been personally judging fights the wrong way. But I assume that he means the, like striking and uh, grappling are weighted more than than controlling the uh, quote-unquote octagon control, as they say. I still don't, I don't know, man. Like, if you're Cody Stamen, again, I don't know how you you don't feel like you got robbed here yeah, a little bit. Yeah, you absolutely should. Especially with the point deduction, you absolutely should feel like you got robbed there. Because the once you have that in your head and you're going like, okay, even if I lost that first round, if I win the, the next two, you know, it, the best case scenario that he's kind of looking at, like, on the other side should be a draw. So if I do it all well in the rest of this fight, then I should win it. And then when you do pretty damn well in the rest of that fight. Yeah. And to, to come out of that afterwards with them still saying it's a draw, I mean, I understand. We, it seems like we have this argument all the time about how much to score takedowns. And I agree that just taking somebody down does not count as effective grappling. But taking them down and keeping them there for a while and hitting them with ground and pound when they're on the mat and just being able to decide where they are and yeah. where the fight takes yeah. place, I think that that does count for something. I agree, especially if that's the bulk of the action that takes place in right. a round. Like, I don't necessarily think you should be giving guys rounds when they grab a takedown with the last 20 seconds you know, left on the clock and they just kind of coast to the, to the, to the bell. But at the same time, like if you manage to control the full five minutes or essentially the full five minutes on the ground, even if there's not a ton of damage, even if there's not a ton of action down there, I feel like you still have to give that guy the the round just because, you know, you effectively controlled where the fight was contested and, and you were the aggressor and, and in control of that. So I feel like that should be enough to win the round. Next question this week comes to us from hockey legend Mark Messier. Okay. So Tito Ortiz, quote-unquote, won a fight Saturday night. He still looks good getting off the bus and apparently still has enough stamina for a 19-week training camp. So to be honest, in a fight that wasn't uh, catered for him to win, could he be competitive in a promotion such as Bellator 1 or Ryzen? Could he even possibly pull a couture and become a middle-aged champion somewhere? Your discourse would be appreciated. Ben, how was your experience? How was watching Combate Americas this weekend? It was interesting. I wrote about it for The Athletic. If people want to read a little bit more about my more in-depth thoughts about it. It's interesting, you know, to go and watch a pay-per-view by some other fight promotion. And it reminds you, especially when you're flipping back and forth between that and trying to catch the UFC. 
how we talk sometimes about the UFC being a, a well-oiled machine. Yeah. Which at times can get monotonous. Yeah. Because it's like a uniform look. That it sounds the same, looks the same all the time. And they're, at a certain point when you've seen enough of them, a feeling just sets in like, here we are again. Yeah. As if it's just one long stream and you just check in with it every <laughs> Saturday night. And it might be going on 24 hours a day for all you know. And then you go and you watch something like this and you're like, okay, this is definitely different. And there's going to be weird hiccups. And at some point, I'm 95% sure somebody opened a can of energy drink, like right next to the mic, and then realized that they shouldn't do that because yeah. of the unmistakable sound of a can opening. Stuff like that. Or they're going to show like parts of the same video package over and over again. And you're like, do they realize that they're doing this? Little stuff like that. Um, but it's interesting, you know, to get a chance to watch somebody else's stuff. Now, this fight, though, like... For one thing, Tito Ortiz is 19 week training camp. 19 weeks, Chad. Yeah, long long training camp for uh Alberto Del Rio. Yeah, it's like a third of the year Tito Ortiz has been training for this fight. Yep. Alberto Del Rio, mm-hmm. a fight that he was going to win as soon as it was signed. And everybody yeah. knew that. And I mean, yeah, he he his style, I think like Randy Couture, it, it ages better than a lot of other styles. Yeah, for sure. Because he'd never relied on just having fast hands or explosive power or anything like that. So that stuff doesn't go away at the same rate that somebody's like Chuck Liddell's style does or Anderson Silva's style even. So he had that going for him. And also it seems like maybe in terms of target selection of what kind of fights Tito Ortiz is going to put himself in these <laughs> target days. Target selection, okay. He's... You know, he is not putting himself so much anymore in the situation to be somebody else's stepping stone. Yeah. Like, if you look, like he's got a, a three-fight winning streak going on, but then if you look at who he's fought, it's it's not guys where, you know, some 29-year-old killer is coming up trying to make his name off of Tito Ortiz, and he's signing up for that. Like, not at all. And so, like, could he be competitive? Uh, I mean, we saw him in Bellator. Somewhere like one or, or Ryzen, maybe Ryzen more, because Ryzen would be like, okay, would be weird. What could we put Tito Ortiz in? Yeah. Then, yeah, sure. Like, he could conceivably do this for a few more years. I mean, a 19-week training camp seems like it's going to take a toll yeah. sooner or later. Yeah. But, yeah, like, he, the way he fights and what he's looking to do in there and who he's looking to do it against, he could conceivably do this for a while, which... Uh, that doesn't exactly fill me with enthusiasm. Let's <laughs> no, say that. No, I would agree with you. Ortiz could be at this point, like basically a carnival wrestler who shows up with zero training camp and goes out there and just does the Tito Ortiz thing. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why you spend 19 weeks. I guess you you want to leave no stone unturned, especially when in preparing for a fight with Alberto Del Rio. Who didn't he have like all of one MMA fight previous to this? No, I mean he had like. Uh, a handful, he had like a dozen or so like okay. fights, but I mean, I think his record was like nine and five or something. Uh, the th- the thing I wonder, especially with this particular thing, the Combate thing, right? Because Combate America's thing is it's Hispanic focused MMA, yeah. and prior to this, mostly targeting a Spanish speaking audience, and like who they think their audience is, you know, people on Univision who are 
mostly Mexican Americans, yeah, but or like Spanish speaking Americans. I feel like I know where you're going with this. <laughs> and then you get Tito Ortiz coming out here with all his Trump stuff, and it was so much Trump stuff, man. Like the Combate did a little bit to play into it. Like the tagline for the event was "Which side are you on?" and the event takes place basically right on the border in yeah. Texas, and so it's really clearly drawing a line there. And Tito shows up with his Trump shirt his he's wearing the maga hat at times other times he's wearing the border patrol hat he apparently like autographed a border patrol agent's handcuffs earlier in the week he comes out he has a flag draped over the cage that says trump 2020 no more bullshit which is just the irony level for that is off the charts yeah and yet he also seems to think that he's the good guy like and for this audience, it would seem like you were definitely not. Even the Juliana Pena is on the commentary, and like right after he wins, she's like, "I don't care who won. Mexico's not paying for that fucking wall." <laughs> and you know, like that subtext was right there throughout the entire thing, and he's just playing into it. So, like during the pre-fight stuff, he's talking about how, like, oh no, I represent like the Mexican Americans who. Uh, understand the value of following the law and immigrating legally and stuff. And you're just like, man, what are you doing here? Yeah. The thing I wonder is like, does Combate want this guy? I can understand you want him as like, he brings some heat, but you'd want to see him in fights where he gets his ass kicked. Right? Like, that's what I would think a large portion of your audience would want after all this Trump stuff. Like they, I mean, I'm sure there are some Mexican Americans who support Trump, but I would think on the whole, if you poll a lot of your audience, there's not going to be a whole lot of people who are like, yeah, we're totally into the Trump build the wall stuff, man. And how all the Mexicans come in here are rapists and drug dealers. That's great. Give us more of that. I mean, number one, if you told me that Tito Ortiz essentially has no idea what he's talking about, I would believe you. Number two, I think if you're Combate Americas, you just want one eyeball, right? If you, any way you can get some publicity from the MMA media or drive a, drive some fight TV or whatever it was, pay-per-views, you probably do it. Maybe this is all the, like, the long game, they'll bring in John Jones and have him fight uh, Tito Ortiz. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I'm sure I'm, uh, Campbell's got, uh, Campbell McLaren has John Jones on speed dial. The question is, if Tito Ortiz versus Chuck Liddell at that Golden Boy thing, which Ugh. we watched. Yeah, God, it just made me feel so depressed <laughs> even to think about it. That one, I think according to Dave Meltzer, I think his estimate on that one was 40,000 buys. Whew. Now you have this one, which takes place on the same night as a free UFC on ESPN card, also the same day as the uh, the Ruiz Joshua rematch on DAZN, yeah. which for you know fight fans who already have DAZN is like feels like effectively free because you already signed up for the service. What do you think? Pay per view buys? Do you do you crack ten thousand? I mean, I'm sure they'll put out a press release saying they got like eight million, right? So who knows? That's almost as many as one FC gets. Yeah, I know. Big business. All right, well, that's going to do it for the first part of the show. Uh, We will be back to talk about UFC 245, which is coming up this Saturday night. That starts right after this. All right, Ben. Coming up this Saturday night from T-Mobile Arena down there in Las Vegas, it's UFC 245, a triple bill of championship fights headlining this one. Let's start with the main event, Kamaru Usman versus Colby Covington uh, for the UFC welterweight title. I have up to this point 
been able to make good on my plans to not view any pre-fight hype for Covington versus Usman. However, I would also acknowledge there hasn't been a ton of it. Yeah. Now we're getting into fight week. I expect the volume will get turned up for better and worse on this thing. But I've been surprised up to this point how little media damage Colby Covington specifically has been able to do. There just hasn't been a ton of him. I thought this whole lead-up would be like weeks and weeks of him uh, just saying ridiculous uh, cringy stuff about Kamaru Usman. I haven't seen a ton of it. I also have been specifically avoiding it, so maybe it's been out there and I just haven't clicked on it. But up to this point, I feel like it's been a fairly quiet lead-up. Are you ready for me to ruin that for you? Yeah, go ahead. Well, first of all, I agree with you that it has been a quiet lead-up, not just for that particular fight, but for this card in general. Like It almost seems like the UFC just looked at it and decided, this one sells itself. We don't have to do too much. But you were off for a few weeks there, and it seemed like that should have been the time when you could have turned more attention to building up yeah. anticipation for this. And instead, it was just like, it felt like the UFC just went totally quiet. Yeah, and you come back for this event in DC. You get some ads during the event, but even then, it just feels like you know we're copy and pasting, like we're just plugging in the stuff to do what we normally do, and then there it is, and nothing special really. And it's, you know, three titles on the card is just a good card all the way through, so it felt like it should be hyped as something special, and almost as if the UFC couldn't be bothered. Yeah, it's. I mean. It's interesting, obviously, because we are kind of forging ahead into this new era of pay-per-views on ESPN Plus and uh, to what extent buy rates are still a driving force and, and what we even what we even uh, feel like we need to get done in terms of bringing in revenue via pay-per-views. And obviously we were just speculating we don't know a ton about what's going on behind the scenes either with ESPN or the UFC in terms of their attitudes or philosophy about that. But especially for this one, up to this point, well, again, we'll see what happens the next few days leading up to this actual fight card, but it kind of feels like they are taking a uh, a laissez-faire attitude a little bit about this pay-per-view, pretty much like, eh, you know, whatever it does is going to be whatever it does. Yeah, and it'll be good enough. And that's now, weird. That's weird, I feel like, especially since, and I, I, I know you're going to bring up Colby Covington here in a minute, but like clearly he's gone out of his way the last several years to craft himself into some type of either promotable or hateable figure in the MMA landscape. And I know he said the thing about how they weren't going to, they let him know that they weren't going to re-sign him. And then he became the Colby Covington MAGA guy and all this other stuff has happened. But it seems like, especially after the uh, video of Dana White playing blackjack back in the, (laughs) back in the day, uh, it seems like Colby Covington's efforts to quote unquote promote himself have also not necessarily made him all that popular with the UFC itself. Or with UFC fans. Yeah. And so, yeah, you. it's like he's selling you this story that, like, here's how I made myself into a star, and except the star part didn't really. It was just like we took slightly more notice of you, and yeah. we disliked it. Yeah. And, okay, but... I was interested. I don't know if you saw this clip no. that was on Twitter. No, I just told you I haven't. I retweeted it. Maybe you should you should consider following me on, on Twitter. No. I have a lot of good content on there. I no, think you'd really I doubt enjoy. It. I don't think so. Uh, don't need the hockey updates. The Colby Covington was on this show that Candace Owens does. Do you know Candace Owens? Don't know who that is. A uh, right-wing kind of YouTuber 
who then becomes like more of a mainstream figure with her Trump support. I got to be honest. I don't feel like you're selling it to me right now. Author of the book Blackout, How Black America Can Make Its Second Escape from the Democrat Plantation. So she has Colby Covington on. And she asks him, like, what was your breakout moment? Like, what was the thing that really did it for you? And he tells a story about how going in to fight Demian Maia, the UFC wasn't going to re-sign him, didn't think that he moved the needle, didn't like his fighting style. And so then he made the conscious decision to talk about how Brazil is full of a bunch of filthy animals. And, uh, the, and he also at one point notes... It's a third world country, and they're throwing their $5 hot dogs at me. Like, basically, like, these are starving people in villages, like, dirt hut villages, and they still hated me so much that they would throw food at me rather than eat it. Eat the vital nutrients Jesus that Christ. they must have needed. Like, that's kind of what he's saying there. And for one thing, when you're watching that, you're going, so wait, is Colby Covington basically telling us that... Uh, hey, look, let me set the record straight, just in case anybody's getting the wrong idea about me. Uh, the real story is that I will say anything. Yeah. It seems Does that way. Does he think that that is the good explanation? Like, where he's like, look, I realized people didn't care enough about me, and so I resolved to be as obnoxious and just insufferable as I had to be in order for them to pay just a kind of a small amount of attention to me. Yeah. And does he think that that is him being like... Like, is he doing the Bobby the Brain heen and tapping the, the forehead when he says that? Like, he thinks, like, here's it. I know you're all curious what the blueprint as master plan looks like. Here it is. Yeah. Aren't I a genius? I mean, honestly, that if that's true, if any of that origin story is true, it seems remarkably similar to the Chael Sonnen origin story where he tried to text Joe Silva about right. getting a fight and Joe Silva was basically like, new phone, who dis? Yes. And Chael Sonnen had to resolve to never be forgotten again. Like, it's it's honestly kind of like a, a similar story. Uh, but worse. Yeah, much worse. Like, clearly Colby Covington doesn't have the the same skills, the same particular set of skills that <laughs> uh, Chael Sonnen had in order to make himself the bad guy. Uh, but here we are. Colby Covington has... You know, one way or another, finally fought slash talked his way into a UFC welterweight title fight. He's going to fight Kamaru Usman at UFC uh, 245. You got matching 15 and one records here going up against each other. You got two guys who, even if you disassociate all of the bizarre trash talk and and quote unquote efforts to promote yourself, two guys who have been really really good. Two guys who have been. True to their fighting styles and have been hard to to stop, hard to be better than, hard to to beat. How does this one go? Man, I honestly don't know. Which I feel like is the, that's the appealing thing about it, right? Yeah. Because they both do kind of similar things. And they're both a couple of guys who can just like wind themselves up. And set this high pace and just keep it. Mm-hmm. Keep it all the way through for five rounds. We've seen them both do that. And so then does it become a question of who breaks first? Like who can maintain that pace? Yeah. Or does it become a question of who can find something else to do? Like who can make this into some other kind of fight? Like we talked before about how like George St. Pierre has that line about how the person who has or who seems to have the best conditioning in the fight is not necessarily the person who just 
has the best conditioning in the gym is the person who can make the fight into what they want it to be. Who's not having to like play catch up with the other guy and who's not having to dance to somebody else's tune. Like that will wear you out. If you can be in control of it and decide what we're going to do, then it's a lot easier to not gas out. And so between those two guys who have really excelled at using that, like weaponizing that kind of mentality against other people, who, who gets the edge? Who can make the other guy play into his hands? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I mean, Kamaru Usman, I think, brings more power to the table. He's a little bit more of a dangerous striker, whereas Colby Covington just makes it hard for just you. Just a lot of it. Yeah, he's a very volume-oriented striker. He, he makes it hard for you to implement your game. And in addition to that, it's just hard to, to catch your breath and hard to keep up with his cardio. He, like, that's basically his biggest weapon up to this point is his sort of like weaponized cardio. He's able to go out there and just overwhelm people with his offense and, and with this sheer amount of strikes that he throws. And obviously he's also got really good wrestling. So uh, he can always mix in a takedown attempt or, or use his defensive wrestling or push you up against the cage. He's got a lot of different things he can do. Uh, Kamara Usman is a guy who can, who can hurt you with one punch. And so I think that like, his success or failure in this fight may well be whether he can do things to allow him to get off kind of like, uh, I don't know if you can stalemate Colby Covington just because of all the different things he does. But I think Kamar Usman has to be able to make space and ability for himself to, to hit Colby Covington harder than Covington hits him. To give Colby Covington a reason to stop coming forward. So really? Yeah. Yeah. Like, How much do you think it matters who gets the first takedown? Like how when you were watching this fight and you're trying to decide, okay, how's this going to go, and somebody gets a takedown minute and a half into the first round, are you going to be like, aha, now I've learned something? Maybe I just like these fights like this where you got two guys who seem like they are mirror images of each other in a lot of ways are really hard to predict to me what what's going to happen because you can have two wrestlers that go out there and get into a wild grappling affair, or you could have two guys that like get into a somewhat amateurish like striking match. Not that either of these guys are are amateurish. They're both pretty skilled, but like, you just never know which skills are going to come to the fore. Uh, I mean, my sense of it also is that, uh, Kamara Usman's a little bit bigger and that maybe he will have a, just a very slight strength advantage over Colby Covington. I don't know if that will play out to be true, but uh, I feel like this is a, uh, if you can ha- if you can find a bad matchup for Colby Covington in the division, this might be it. I don't, yeah. I don't know if that's going to turn out to be the case, but it's just, uh, when I think about it, that's one of the things that occurs to me is that it doesn't seem like he's going to have quite as easy a time implementing his game against Kamara Usman as he had has against some of his other opponents. Because I feel like Usman has just as many skills as Covington in almost the exact same ways. Let's say Colby Covington goes out there and gets beat. Yeah. You know, beat pretty soundly. Maybe not finished, but there's no question that he lost the fight. Does he just dry up and blow away like a leaf in the wind? Does does MMA be like, okay, good. We decided we didn't really want to have this guy be a thing. We were begrudgingly paying attention to him. And now we found out that he's not going to be the champion, so we can just forget about him. Yeah. I mean, just because the MMA world at large decides that they don't necessarily have much use for a person doesn't mean that that person is going to disappear. Especially if all the MMA world is a bunch of virgins and nerds. Yeah. 
I mean, I feel like, you know, you can make a Greg Hardy parallel in some ways where like, I feel like at this point to Greg Hardy's career, we have a snapshot of who he is and what he's capable of. Kind of like we've watched enough fights of his where it kind of seems like, okay, he's still relatively green, but it doesn't seem like he is going to be the heavyweight murderer that we thought maybe he was capable of being. Yeah. And so I think that that a lot of people have seen his body of work in the UFC and have thought, okay, well, shrug in in many ways. Uh, Call me when this guy is capable of like fighting a contender. Otherwise, I don't know how interested I am. But you know the UFC is just going to keep putting him out there. So like a, it's the same thing with Colby Covington, just because well, he loses. They're way this. less excited about Colby. Covington. True, true. But at the same time, like I think Colby Covington just gets shuffled back into the deck. I don't necessarily think this is like the end of him. I don't think it's Colby Covington's denouement after this fight. And I mean, I think things get probably really cringy if he wins, because then he's the champion. I mean, that's the question is. Like, what if, what if he becomes a champion? He's like, oh, thank goodness. I don't need this stuff anymore. Oh, that would be awesome if he got <laughs> if he became the champion and took took off the hat, threw yeah. away the one blazer that he owns. And he's <laughs> just like, well, now I'm back back to being Colby. Yeah, just me. It's me. It's Colby. You guys put in the work on the wrestling mats. Maybe creative can come up with a new gimmick for him. I mean, you know that though that's not going to that if he did become the champion, then it's just going to be like, all right, what can we do with this? Intergym beef with Jorge Masvidal talking about how Colby Covington has to get his meals through Uber Eats now because he's so terrified of Jorge. <laughs> See, there's a thing like he's always going to have that Jorge Masvidal fight. That's just that's out there. That's a card he's got in his back pocket. Win, lose, or draw against Kamaru Usman, they can always do that one if they want to. We'll have to see if it's uh, makes sense for both of them in terms of where they're at in their career. Let's talk about Max Holloway, Alexander Volkanovsky. Uh, I feel like with Holloway fights sometimes, and maybe particularly this one. We don't necessarily have super high hopes for Volkanovski. Like we don't. No one is is anticipating a uh, an upset here, and and that probably just says more about how highly we regard Max Holloway than it does anything else. Because Alexander Volkanovski is super talented, obviously uh, twenty and one as a professional, so you know he's got skills. But at the same time, I don't know if you want to say it's overlooked, but like I feel like everyone is expecting a Max Holloway featherweight championship victory here so maybe really? we're not maybe I mean, we're not focusing in on this one quite as much as we should be he, he's the slight favorite and rightfully so i would say yeah. like, well, the odds it looks like minus 170 for max holloway uh you can get out if you got 20 bucks you never want to see again you want to throw it on alexander volkanovsky looks like you can get plus 150 odds uh i'd say that's about right yeah because it is not at all unthinkable for me to imagine Alexander Volkanovsky winning this fight. He's got some things he's got to overcome. Max Holloway has that height and reach advantage on him and just has so many things that he can do well. I also, though, lately especially, watching Max Holloway, his reliance on his ability to take a punch, like his, that strategy he has where at times it's like he wants to bait you into planting your feet and throwing at him, thinking that... I have to stop his advance. I have to give him something to worry about, make him respect my power. And that's what he wants you to do. And then you're in the spider's web, basically. Yeah. And that's when he's really going to get you. He's also been very active, taken some damage. I, part of me keeps waiting for him to show up one night and it all to catch up with him. Yeah, he's not going to be able to fight that way forever, I don't think. And it makes you wonder what it's going to take for him to kind of uh, 
like what the message will be for him to change that strategy. I feel like guys usually don't change their strategies until something bad happens, which for obvious human nature reasons. But uh, I don't know that this is necessarily the one that's going to do it. I guess we'll see. Like, obviously, Volkanovski is very capable. In fact, the thing that I'm looking at here, the tail of the tape, says Volkanovski actually has a reach advantage. Oh, really? Here, but that... I mean, I guess you see him standing next to each other, and it looks like he right, doesn't. Right, right, yeah, he's he's several inches shorter than Max Holloway. This says that he has a 71.5-inch reach, and Max Holloway has a 69-inch reach. But at the same time, uh, like, who knows if that actually plays out to be meaningful when the bodies are out there. Yeah. When the actual physical bodies are out there. Yeah, I mean, if you were going to ask me to pick some underdog from these three title fights... Uh, and for the record, the underdogs would be Colby Covington, who was going off at about the same odds as Alexander Volkanovsky, and then Jermaine Durandamy, who is greater than a 2-1 to one underdog against Amanda Nunes. Uh, I'd pick Volkanovsky. I think he has the best chance to take home a belt here that he doesn't have coming in. Yeah, I mean, I guess I just don't know what's going to happen in the Usman-Covington fight like we talked about. That one seems like kind of a toss-up to me, so I might lean a little bit toward Colby if I had $20 I never wanted to see again. But I agree with you. It's not like this. Is, it's not like Alexander Volkanovsky is not a live dog. He is. He could. He could definitely win this fight. I just think that we have so much confidence in Max Holloway. Maybe it's too much confidence. I don't know. I just you know I think back to the Dustin Poirier fight, where the whole lead up to that thing was kind of about how Max Holloway was about to have this brave, beautiful new world at lightweight, and he was going to get all these high profile, big money fights, and then you know Poirier obviously beat him over the course of five rounds that just, like, everyone seemed like they were surprised. Like, oh, we didn't even think about this as a thing that could happen. Well, but also, over the last, like, year, not, like, calendar year, but, like, last 12 months, going back to December 2018, Max Holloway has fought 14 rounds against Brian Ortega, Dustin Oof. Poirier, Frankie Edgar. Yeah, that's a lot. Now, he won two of those fights, but still, that's a lot of stuff going on with you. Yeah, that's a lot of fights, and against... Uh, Guys who do damage, guys who are are uh, grinders, I guess you could say. Guys that you're you're not going to come out of a five round fight with those guys unscathed. You're going to have even if you win, you're going to have physical damage. That's a lot. Yeah, I had not thought about that. That's a that's a lot of wear and tear, even for a young athlete who's in his prime. Let's talk about the women's bantamweight fight a little bit here. Amanda Nunez against Jermaine Durandamy. Uh, if Max Holloway versus Alexander Volkanovsky is flying under the radar a little bit, this is the one that is way down there. Yeah. And it probably has a lot to do with Jermaine Durandamy. Yeah. I think we are all surprised to see back in a UFC title fight after the way things went the first time yeah. around. You mean when she was the UFC's inaugural women's featherweight champion for yeah. like 15 minutes? A couple of days. Had a cup of coffee with the belt, as they say. Yeah, I mean, it's not just because of Jermaine Durand. I mean, granted, like, she doesn't bring a ton of personality firepower to any fight. People aren't just knocking down the doors trying to get in to see a Jermaine Durand title fight. Yeah. Also, though, kind of frustratingly, Amanda Nunes is not... She has not really reached that next level of stardom that you'd expect after somebody who is a two-division champion who knocked out the seemingly unbeatable Chris Cyborg. Yeah. And then you, you put them together the, in, in a fight card that already the UFC is not super outgoing about promoting the whole thing. Right. And then this is number three of the three title fights that it seems interested in. So, yeah, of course it flies way under the radar there. Uh, the only good reason I can come up with to think that Jermaine Durandby wins this fight is that it would just be a pain in everybody's ass. <laughs> I mean, there is... Uh... 
if you go back to the uh, the tried and true old school philosophy of mixed martial arts, that like, what's the worst thing that could happen? Yeah, <laughs> that's, then that probably is what happens. I think the mere fact that you've got that you we're going to stack this thing with all three of these title fights tells you something. Tells you like. We are think not, of any one champion's yeah, drawing not, power. We're not crazy about any one of these champions carrying the whole day by themselves. So now you have this this triple bill, and especially uh, you know in a world where we have so many events and we've got so many champions now, and you always want to put some gold on the poster for pay per views. It's a little bit of a strange move to to load this one up with three title fights, and then of course the the pay per view right after this is the uh, Conor McGregor Don Cerrone fight that has. No title on the line. You got the two guys, probably two of the only guys that the USC feels comfortable putting out there without a title on the line to kick off uh, what seems like a fairly blockbuster early 2020 slate so far. So uh, you're 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 overloading this one with gold, and then we don't have any gold at all in the next one. What about the other two fights that are on this pay-per-view card? Uh, Marlon Moraes and Jose Aldo at bantamweight, and then Peter Yan and Uriah Faber also at bantamweight. A couple of uh, a couple of old lions yeah. going out there. I don't know if Marlon Moraes really qualifies as like a young gun, but clearly Jose Aldo trying to find a new way down there at 135, trying to recraft a, a career resurgence. And then Uriah Faber, who's come out of retirement, won his his first fight after that, but now gets himself. Into the frying pan here against Peter Young. Isn't this the exact fight that you were hoping to see Uriah Faber avoid? Like yes. when I brought up yeah. this as a possibility, you were like, why would you do that? Right, yeah. It seems like the California kid is uh, getting thrown to the lions here in, in some way. Hey, look, you wanted to be back in the game, right? Yeah. Now you're back in it. Yeah. You came in there, you beat somebody who maybe people didn't necessarily expect you to beat, and now you wanted to be in the mix. This is what the mix looks like. It's kind of dangerous. Yeah. We talked about this on uh, Friday a little bit in the power rankings, but Jose Aldo going down to 135. There have been some photos that have surfaced on the internet of Jose Aldo looking pretty slim, pretty slight in his effort to get down to 135 pounds. And like we talked about on Friday, uh, if Jose Aldo had a weight class related problem, I think we always thought it was going to be the opposite thing that he was, you know, he had a tough cut to featherweight as it were. And that I think a lot of people thought he would end up going up to lightweight. In fact, there was, uh, you know, years ago during the year of the super fight, when zero super fights emerged, <laughs> one of the fights that we had been targeting was, uh, Jose Aldo against Anthony Pettis for the lightweight title, if I'm not mistaken. And and of course that that one never happened. So you here you have an aging Jose Aldo kind of going the opposite direction than ever that everyone assumed he would go. He's going down to bantamweight and he's going to fight an unbelievably tough guy in Marlon Moraes. Yeah, that's a that's a tough night of work. Even if you have not been surviving on rainwater and you know salads, two pounds of salad a day which is what Jose Aldo looks like. Man, to roll in there and have to deal with a guy like Marlon Moraes when, you know, you've been starving for weeks. Yeah. That doesn't sound fun. If I told you you had to take one of the old guys in Uh, these two fights, which one are you taking? I'm taking Jose Aldo for sure. Okay. Because you you sounded a little pessimistic about him, but he's still your choice. I'm not optimistic, but Uriah Faber is, I believe, looking at the odds right now, the biggest underdog on this card. Wow. On the entire card. Peter Yan is scary, man. Yes. Scary for anybody, much less a California man. 
of advanced years. Yep, California man of advancing age. Did you see him in uh, Song Yudong's corner at a uh, UFC ESP, ESP, UFC on ESPN seven, where he kept having to tell the uh, the Chinese speaker, "Tell him this," and then they would yell. Just seems awkward. It does awkward, awkward. corner man work. Well, you know what also seems awkward is when you're watching Combate Americas and they'll do a backstage interview with somebody that's all in Spanish, and then the person who is doing the interview then has to kind of like summarize it for you. Interesting. They're not going to do the whole thing. They don't or, have an interpreter there? Nope. Or, I mean, the interviewer, she speaks Spanish, so she can do it, but she's also doing a thing where she's, like, asking a question, the person answers in Spanish, and then she brings the mic back to herself to be like, she said, uh, basically this. Or, at the end of the fight, Tito Ortiz gets a chance to make his speech, and then Alberto Del Rio, Del Rio makes a comically long speech in Spanish. And afterwards, and you're waiting to see, like, are they going to translate it? Am I going to get anything here? And then the, the play-by-play man, Max Bretos, uh, gets on the mic after and says, Wow, I can't do it justice. And then he offers, like, a little bit of, like, paraphrasing of what he said. But you're like, he talked for, like, five minutes, man. He's, <laughs> I'm sure he said a lot more than that. But I guess I, I should have taken Spanish in high school instead of German. I'm surprised they let Alexander or uh, that they let Alberto Del Rio get on the mic. After that thing. Impassioned speech. I mean, I didn't understand much of it, but uh, he seemed to really mean it. I can say that. The headline over here on uh, Mike Bad to the Bone story on MMA Junkie says, Happy with new contract, Uriah Faber hopes he'll jump the line to Henry Cejudo after UFC 245. Well, let's take it one at a time, bro. One at a time. And be careful what you wish for. I had a great conversation with Dana White. He's always been fair to me, and my deal uh, was an old deal. Faber told MMA Junkie it was three or four years old. I'm not sure how they operate these days and what you make, but I think we reached a fair deal. My thing was I told matchmaker Sean Shelby, I'll fight whoever you guys want, clearly. But let's just make it right. Then I talked to Dana, and we got it worked out. Okay. So uh, that, a picture is forming in my head of what happened. You could here. pull back the curtain a little bit now. Right, it was like, hey, look, this is an old deal under old money, and it's a different situation now, and everything. You guys, it's a different UFC inflation. There's a lot of other stuff going on. I need to get my money right, and there's, and you know, I'll fight whoever you want as long as you give me the the right money. And then Sean Shelby's eyebrow spikes up, and he goes, anybody? <laughs> And he's like, yeah, man, sure, anybody. As long as the, the zeros are right on the paycheck, I'll fight anybody. And Sean says, okay, okay, just to clarify, you did say anybody. Now we have Peter Yawn. Now, California man versus Peter Yawn. The thing about Peter Yawn is that when he beats you, he makes it look like it hurts. Yeah. He has that, like, Yoana Yajajic style. Of mean. Just, just mean and going to hit you a lot over a long period of time. Like, the worst thing you could do is to betray in your face or body language that something hurt because then he is going to target, like, seven or eight more shots immediately to that same area. Yeah, yeah. He's going to enjoy the hell out of it, too. I know. But it's just... I guess we're going to watch. I guess we're going to watch that. And let's kick it off the pay-per-view. So, we'll begin. We'll begin with some just some sheer meanness and potential elder abuse. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. I would be remiss... If we got in and out of this episode of the CME without me kicking it to you so you can just tell me what was happening in the folks house when uh, Bryce Mitchell got that twister <laughs> over the weekend. Yeah, uh, I was flipping back and forth and managed to catch the twister. And uh, at first it was just like, 
no, he is not gonna. He's not gonna go for the twister. Yeah, and he didn't quite get it cleanly at first, but then you could see, like, no, he is absolutely committed to this. He got it in his head. He's gonna twister this motherfucker, and he's absolutely gonna do it. Yeah. And I was just like, son of a bitch. Then I also though remembered when uh, the Korean zombie did it to, to Leonard Garcia at that event in Seattle. I was at that one years and years ago, and I remember calling up Eddie Bravo after that, which. Any conversation you have over the phone with Eddie Bravo is going to be interesting. Yeah. And this one was especially interesting. And he was talking about how pleased he was to see somebody use the twister to win a UFC fight. And how, and I was like, well, did you, you know, you're watching it on TV and everything. Did you celebrate it? Did you, you?" and he was like, oh yeah, man. Yeah. I was so happy. I went down to Subway and I got myself two big chocolate chip cookies. (laughs) And I just went home and just like read my replies on Twitter and just ate my cookies. And it was a lovely evening, man. And it was just like, okay. Just going to leave out the part where you're high as fuck because that's assumed. (laughs) But also to know like Eddie Bravo has a good night and really wants to kind of bask in it. How he's going to start two big chocolate chip cookies from Subway. Yeah. We going to catch up with Eddie Bravo this time? What you got going on this week? We're going to get the... uh the obligatory Eddie Bravo, there was a Twister submission in the UFC story? It's, it's, it doesn't play as in the second I w- time. I want to know if he went out and got those cookies again, man. I, it's safe to assume that he got the cookies. All right. Just... He might already had the cookies, just by accident. <laughs> All right, well, that's going to do it for this week's Coming Event Podcast. Remember, we're kicking off a normal week here of Patreon content, so Wednesday we'll be back for the live chat. And, of course, we have our textual chat over on The Athletic on, on Thursday 1 p.m. Eastern, 11 p.m. here in the One True Time Zone. And, of course, Friday we have the uh, Patreon Power Hour featuring everyone's favorite co-main event podcast, Patreon Power Hour Power Rankings. And then Friday, are we going to do a uh, fight party? You mean Saturday? Yeah. For, for the s- UFC? Yes, Saturday. Yeah, if we can get our streaming situation under control here. Yeah, that's that's one thing we would have to tackle before that. Might have to think about a Nighthawk. Who knows? I mean, we've streamed from here before, and we've had good luck with it. What's going on now? now the, remember, we're using a different laptop now to do the streaming. And, so you're blaming it on the laptop. Oh, I'm 100%. Well, laptop and the quality of my internet. Together, they form an unholy union. You know what? You take your uh, CME debit card over to Best Buy, slap that thing on the counter, and say, give me the Nighthawk. Give me the night. Let, yeah. You imagine that Best Buy is like a, like a saloon? <laughs> like I just walk in there and I and I just say like yeah. give me the Nighthawk yes. and they're like are you sure the Nighthawk <laughs> yes that's how it works that's how I got mine okay slap the uh, debit card down on the counter I'll go there tomorrow as for right now though we are done we are th- I mean it's not going to work if you don't get faster internet though right like the Nighthawk isn't going to be the answer to all your problems well see here we go now I got to change my entire life is what you're saying <laughs> I think why don't I just move why don't I just sell my house Chad I think- why don't I move to like a uh, like I'll Get a house location chosen solely for Wi-Fi. You just tell me where. I think everyone would be happier here at Casa de Folks if you had faster internet. Think of all the stand-up comedy specials that your wife watches. Oh, see, that's the last She'd thing She'd be I watching need. them in pristine HD. Yeah. No lag. No waiting for buffering. Nobody needs that around here. Well, think about it. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Um, this is Stefan Struve on Twitter talking about his experience. Shit was weird as fuck. 
I felt I was going to give birth to fucking Charizard, and they were booing and chanting. Then I start to fight again, and they chant USA, 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 like my Dutch balls did something wrong. Wow. I mean, that's accurate. That's an accurate description. Yeah. That's, his re- that's again, his reaction to the question, how did you feel about that crowd? I mean, I, I, I'm on Stefan Struve's side here. Yeah. I'm on the side of Stefan Struve and Dutch 